I think 40, 48 or so questions. Uh, it's too late to make it 50. Um, about 35% is diabetes. And then I think it was 25% asthma, COPD. And then the rest is divided between anticonvulsants and Parkinson's disease. So if you have the option to study just one thing, study diabetes, and then go from there. Um, let's, let's talk about them in the order that we covered them in class. So first off, we have the seven-year-old boy, history of asthma, presents with an acute exacerbation. Which of the following will provide the most rapid relief of his symptoms? Inhale beta agonist, right? We should all know the answer to that. What would be, if you're not there yet, you have, you have time. What would be second best? Inhaled anticholinergic, provided it's a protropium, which is fast acting. Not quite as fast as a beta agonist, but the next best thing you could offer in terms of acute bronchodilation. The trouble with inhaled steroids is you're not getting much relief acutely. You know, chronically you're suppressing inflammation, but if there's a lot of it there to begin with that's causing the exacerbation, what would you need to do with your steroid? Get it into the body systemically to cause broad sweeping inhibition of inflammation, either orally or parenterally. Inhaled isn't going to do you much good acutely. Oral leukotriene modifier would be singular montulicas, which again is an anti-inflammatory drug, has no role acutely in oral phosphodiesterase inhibitor. What is that? The other way to ask the question is to give you the names of the drugs. Same question, drug names. It's theophylline, yeah. And theophylline, because, because it's oral, is going to be delayed onset. It's a bronchodilator, but given orally, it's going to be hours before it really starts to work. You could give it intravenously as aminophylline, but why do that when you can just self-administer albuterol? Good to know albuterol in terms of how it works, what its role is. Everyone with asthma should have a prescription for albuterol, regardless of severity, to use as needed. And mechanistically, it's worth brushing up on what it does. It stimulates beta-2 receptors, and that activity increases adenylate cyclase to generate inside the cell and increase the cyclic AMP, and that's what relaxes the muscles to open up the airways. So it may get to that level. But I'm telling you now that it might get to that level, so there'll be no surprise if, for some reason, that mechanism showed up in one of the first couple of questions that you see. All right, now the acute relief medications, beta agonist is preferred, anticholinergics would be second, systemic steroids in conjunction with those other two options, if the exacerbation is severe enough to warrant that. And the prototype drugs are listed next to the drug's mechanism. So albuterol, epitropium, and then prednisone for our steroid. And even though we've seen this and tested it before, 
no better time than to test it again. Steroid side effects should be something that you're familiar with. Systemic side effects that are common and ones that don't make sense. All right, for chronic control, that's where the inhaled steroids come in. And in terms of side effects, how do they compare to systemic steroids? Far, far fewer. Right, what's most common side effect of an inhaled steroid? Oral, oral growth of thrush. How about side effects of leukotriene modifiers? <coughs> Pretty well tolerated. Montelukast singular doesn't cause many side effects. There is one potential side effect that patients are warned about when they pick up the medicine. We don't see it a lot, but it's a possibility. Does anyone know what that is? It's, it's aggressive, aggressive behavior, neuropsychiatric side effects, aggressive behavior, sometimes some suicidal, suicidality. Again, we don't see it that often, but it's there, and patients might learn about it when they're picking up the medicine. What about long-acting beta agonists like salmeterol in terms of use for asthma? It's for chronic control in, in under what circumstance? Um, if they have it like regularly, if it's not mild. So repeated symptoms, persistent symptoms, yeah. and in combination with some other anti-inflammatory option, right? They're not. These drugs are not for use as monotherapy for chronic control. The long-acting beta agonists in the majority of cases of asthma, because we've learned that patients don't do as well. We're sacrificing disease-modifying therapy. They have very good efficacy to reduce steroid dose requirements when used in combination, like Advair is a common combination product, but to use them all by themselves for controller therapy doesn't make a lot of sense. The mast cell stabilizers, chromolin, what's the role there besides chronic control? Very seldom used because the efficacy is pretty poor. The trade-off is that the side effect profile is as good as anything, right? There's almost no side effects, but almost no efficacy, so there you go. The, what keeps us from using theophylline all that often? Narrow therapeutic window, lots of drug interactions, and lots of physiologic changes that can occur within a person that can alter drug exposure. So many interactions that can occur disease-wise, drug-wise, maybe lifestyle-wise. So being familiar with theophylline toxicity and things that might interact and how they interact is, is worthwhile. That's probably two questions right there. And then monoclonal antibodies, these drugs, what's their role? Persistent, poorly controlled asthma, that's allergic in nature. Allergic asthma, the monoclonal antibodies target different types of cytokines to suppress the production or interaction of those cytokines with their receptors. And the one you should recognize is omalizumab, which is Zolair, spelled with an X, X-O-L-A-I-R. Simply recognize that as a prototypical injectable biologic agent that is sometimes used for difficult to treat allergic asthma cases. And then lastly, where does tyotropium fit? What, is, what population is best for that? 
COPD, obstructive lung disease. If you could offer them just one drug therapy, it would be anti-muscarinic agent. And what's nice about tiotropium is that it's just once a day, so you don't have to repeatedly dose. There seems to be higher cholinergic tone in the respiratory tract of patients with obstructive lung disease. Then here, the take-home message he is twofold. Everyone needs a beta agonist, short-acting. And as the symptoms become more persistent, we ought to be adding anti-inflammatory therapy, preferably with an inhaled steroid. If you want to forego using high doses, you could combine that with a long-acting beta agonist. But I wouldn't replace it outright. It's an inhaled steroid either by itself or with the addition of a long-acting beta agonist. And anyone who has any persistent symptoms, mild, moderate, or severe, is a good candidate for chronic use of inhaled steroid. So not to try and remember step two, three, or four. Simply, if it's persistent at any level, you ought to be thinking about going from beta agonist as needed to chronic anti-inflammatory therapy, preferably with a steroid, inhaled steroid. All right, 24-year-old man recently prescribed medication for treatment of asthma. It's an oral medication he takes once a day. It has few side effects. What type of drug was started? Leukotriene inhibitor. Yep, it fits all of the criteria. And it works by inhibiting these pro-inflammatory leukotrienes at the receptors, right? So it's very specific for working within the lungs to suppress, you can't see what I'm drawing here, to suppress inflammation within the lungs and the bronchoconstriction that might also come as a result of leukotriene formation. Where do steroids work on this picture? At the top level, right? They prevent arachidonic acid from being formed in the first place. So broad sweeping anti-inflammatory effects across all different types of what we call prostanoids, prostaglandins or leukotrienes. All right, 64-year-old man, first diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, prescribed insulin for the first time. Which of the following is most accurate? I can't see this slide unless I'm standing right in front of it. There's a lot of glare. <laughs> like here, I have no idea what's on there, which is why I spend so much time over here, I think. There's some self-awareness I'm documenting. <laughs> All right, so inhalation is a possible route of administration. Insulin, Lispro, and regular insulin are long-acting insulins. No type of insulin should be administered intravenously. Most insulins used today are from cows and pigs. Okay, it's the only one that's accurate. All the others are factually inaccurate statements. Lispro and regular are not long-acting, they are short-acting. You can give short-acting insulins intravenously if that should be needed. And most insulins today are bioengineered from human, human genes. They use bacteria to reproduce them, but they don't come from animal sources anymore. Then the prototypes. Lispro or Humalog for rapid acting. Regular or just Humulin regular for short acting. Humulin NPH or just NPH for intermediate acting, which is no different than regular insulin mixed up with some 
protamine to make it longer acting. And then the prototype long acting agent is glaurecine. When do we dose drugs like Humalog? Dependent on meals, right? And the dose is generally reflective of the quantity of carbohydrate intake. When do we dose a drug like Lantus? Independent of meals, usually once a day, most often at bedtime. And why at bedtime versus the morning? I don't think we talked about that. That's what the indication says in the product label. Once a day at bedtime. And that is a consequence of how it was studied. All the studies told patients to take the drug at nighttime. It doesn't have to be that way. It's probably important to be the same time every day, but bedtime isn't absolutely necessary. But that's the way the label reads. All right, these properties, good to be familiar with these. Could be four or five questions that stem from insulin and some of these properties. Where it comes from and where it doesn't come from. How it's stored. How is it stored? Refrigerated. Preferably in the refrigerator. Can we leave it outside of the refrigerator? Yes. For how long? 30 days. Up to about 30 days. What's more stable at room temperature in general? Insulin vials or insulin pens? Insulin vials. Sometimes it's the same, but almost never is it longer for the pens. The good news is the pens have smaller supply. You usually go through them quicker anyway. How do we administer insulin? Most often, subcutaneous self-administration. Where? Subcutaneous tissue, right? Abdomen, arm, leg. What's the most consistent site in terms of rate of absorption? The abdomen. Its role is replacement, right? And then adverse effects. The two most common adverse effects are hypoglycemia and weight gain. And that's a common trend as you go through the drugs for diabetes, differentiating which ones cause hypoglycemia and weight gain and are more or less likely to do that. Because those are oftentimes differentiating factors in terms of how we choose to use some of the other non-insulin-based drugs. So brush up on that piece. All right, 69-year-old woman, diabetes, started on a drug to promote pancreatic insulin release. Weight gain and hypoglycemia are the most common side effects, as you should expect based on the mechanism. So which of the following must have been started? Yeah, so for some of you that remember this or are just more familiar with these drugs, you'll know that the answer is glipizide, but recognizing that there's still a couple weeks to go, it's not at the tip of your tongue for everyone. So the drug up here that's a sulfonylurea is glipizide. Acrobose is what kind of drug? Does anyone recall? It's not the non-sulfonylurea agent, which would work the same way, but it's not an option. Otherwise, you'd have two right answers. And that's for paclonide or prandial, yeah, the non-sulfonylurea. Alpha glucosidase inhibitor, that the net effect is to do what? Prevent absorption of carbohydrate from the GI tract by preventing its digestion. Right? Simple sugars are absorbed, complex sugars are not, and acrobose prevents digestion of complex to, to simple sugar. So it all stays in the GI tract and causes a fair amount of GI side effects. But no weight gain and almost no hypoglycemia. Loraglutide or Victoza, what is that? 
GLP-1 agonist. So it's an incretin analog. And if all hope is lost when you're working through the exam, look carefully at the drug names. And sometimes pieces of the drug can help you remember. Tide refers to a peptide-like drug. Must be injectable. It looks like a protein. May or may not help. Throwing it out there. Metformin. <laughs> most commonly used drug for diabetes in the world next to insulin. We try and give everyone metformin unless for some reason we can't if they're type 2. And then citagliptin. Also, Genuvia, also a incretin modifier, but it's an oral agent. And how does that work? It prevents the degradation of endogenously produced GLP-1. When you go back and start the review, it'll come back. It's not quite there right now, but that's okay. Conceptually, this question looks similar to some of the ones you might see. The question will obviously be different, but <laughs> the concepts are the same. All right, so in terms of drug names, this is the same as what we talked about in class. The prototype sulfonylurea would preside. Prototype non-sulfonylurea, but works the same way, repaglinide. What's the fundamental difference between these two other than structure? Well, other than structure, the structure part is sulfonamide based, non sulfonamide based. Side effects are the same. Duration, onset and duration of action, right? Much quicker and shorter for which of the two? The non sulfonylurea, right? The glinides work very quickly with a short duration. They're attractive to use in someone that suffers frequent hypoglycemia during the day because they're not very long acting, just withhold the dose if they're running into trouble. Lipizide lasts too long. You can't really control it as easily. On top of sulfonamide based drug, and that might not be tolerated. So there are two reasons. Acrobos, we just talked about, metformin. Certainly you should know who's a good candidate for metformin, who's not. I've got an example of that coming up. Pyoglitazone, <laughs> how does that work? The TZDs, Actos. If I were to tell you that it addresses the fundamental deficit in the majority of type 2s, that would lead you to believe that it promotes an increase in receptor sensitivity to insulin. Yeah. A lot of excitement behind their development, but many off-target effects that limit its use clinically. And then the incretin modulator is either injectable or aglutide. That's the most potent way to approach it, but also more side effects. And certainly more costly. Anything on the right-hand side, incretin or below, are very expensive, hundreds of dollars drugs. What about insulin? What's the cost of insulin? Hundreds of dollars, right? It's been around about 100 years, and it's still hundreds of dollars and going up. Cinegliptin, the oral agent. And then empagliflozin, how does that work? Or empagliflozin? What does SGLT2 represent? Can you get any of those words? Transport. What's in there? Glucose. Glucose. <laughs> Glucose transport. If the G, the L, I think, is just a matter of the next letter after G from glucose. Sodium glucose transport type 2 inhibitor. It works at the level of the 
kidney to prevent glucose from being reabsorbed. And then you get a diuretic effect as a result. Epiglyphosin. You familiar with that? So just because I want to clarify in my notes, with the sulfonylureas and the non-sulfonylureas secreted dogs, yeah. uh, do you see the germ side effects with glucosamine or whatever it's called? Because I thought the sulfonylureas would have the germ side effects, and one of the indications for going to the non-sulfonylurea ones is if they can't tolerate those side effects. True. I so, sure. yeah, yeah, so for clarity here, so I've minimized it because maybe I won't ask a question about it, but because oh, okay. <laughs> it's just the obvious one. So sulfonylureas are sulfonamide-based, and sometimes patients with sulfonamide allergy history won't be able to tolerate those drugs, glipizide and any of the others. But they will be able to tolerate the non-sulfonylurea secreted on. Repaglinide is okay to use in those patients. There is no cross-reactivity because there is no sulfonamide structure. So that's one reason to use the other. And then there's another. Yeah. The other would be the hypoglycemia. Still can occur, but it can control for a little bit better. All right. For which of the following patients with diabetes would metformin be the best choice? The 57 year old who is overweight. The 67-year-old who has bad kidneys, the 72-year-old who has class 4 heart failure, or they would all be good candidates? All good candidates? These are dangerous waters to enter into. C, C only? That's the best candidate? What? <laughs> what is our primary concern when it comes to metformin use? It's clear through the kidney, not that it's toxic to the kidney, but it's clear through the kidney, and if it fails to be removed, it can accumulate and cause what kind of side effect? What's the side effect we worry about? We don't see it a lot because we're pretty good about steering people in the right direction in terms of whether we use it or not. Lactic acidosis. So which of these patients is at greatest risk for developing an acidotic-like picture? Certainly B, because they're not clearing the medicine. What about C? Yeah, they're not oxygenating very well, right, with advanced heart failure. That's what that is. Class 4 is bad heart failure. So A is the right answer here. B and C are not good candidates. And as tempting as it was, it's not all of the above. All right, 45-year-old man, history of seizure disorder, presents to your office first time. For the past several years, he's been taking phenytoin, well-tolerated, good control of his seizures. What's best to monitor the safety of this drug? His blood pressure, his thyroid function, his fasting glucose, the level of the drug itself. The level of the drug itself. Almost necessary, right? If you want to ensure that the drug is really being used safely. In this case, it probably is given the history, but if it hasn't been checked in a year, it probably should be checked now. We don't worry about the other parameters when it comes to phenytoin. And we worry about drug levels because of this. What is this showing us? 
not linear? It's a narrow therapeutic window, and it's non-linear throughout that window. So it, it's very unpredictable. One patient, it might look like this curve. Some other patient, the bend occurs at curve 400, another 500, another 100. And so the ability to monitor goes a long way towards being able to determine the right dose. Yeah, is there a blanket rule for how often you should be checking levels for anticonvulsants? The answer to that is not really. It would be in a patient like this who's stable probably once a year. In a patient where you're trying to figure out the dose or just starting, pretty frequent until you get to whatever is a stable dose. Maybe even every few days when you're first starting. Could be as soon as, as, as frequent as that, but you could stretch it out and then it could probably go as seldom as once a year once they're stable. This here is the reason in words for what we're seeing there. Almost any drug will transition from linear behavior, low end here, to non-linear, high end here. Most drugs, that transition occurs where? Well beyond the therapeutic range for whatever that drug is. In the case of phenytoin, carbamazepine is like this too. The transition occurs before you even reach the therapeutic range. And that's why we're into this realm. But any drug has the potential to get to nonlinear if you use enough of it. What's another drug that we're all familiar with that looks just like this? Alcohol, right? Alcohol looks just like this. It becomes nonlinear in the therapeutic range, which is what makes it so dangerous. You're finally therapeutic, and then just one more dose puts you into the toxic realm. And everyone's a little bit different, right? Some people it's five drinks, or ten, or maybe one, or less than one. Remember Kevin? He taught us. <laughs> Kevin's less than one. <laughs> he doesn't mind you saying that. He actually stayed on. He finished the program a couple weeks ago, and he's staying on to work with us here. All right. So. All right, and this is just an example of the variability you can see. This, this is real pharmacokinetic study. So these are nine different individuals, nine or ten, and you can see that they're all given doses of this drug, and this dose, three milligrams per kilogram per day, is about four units for some people, and it's close to eight units for others. It's, it's different. Everyone is a little bit different in terms of where they'll be on this curve. Very unpredictable. All right, so the common anticonvulsants, we just did this earlier today, but these are the ones to be able to, to map to different areas. So recognize phenytoin, carbamazepine, ethosuximide, gabapentin, certainly the mechanisms by which these drugs work. What is known to work, like what is a mechanism by which we currently have drugs available, and maybe pick out one that we don't currently use as a mechanism. Wouldn't make sense, or we just, we didn't talk about it. And then the drugs for which there's mixed effects, so they don't fall into any one particular category. The principal concerns, especially the first two, almost all anticonvulsants, CNS suppression, the majority of them GI upset. And then on top of that, the older drugs tend to produce more dermatologic side effects. Lamotrigine on top of that is a lot of side effects. Some bone marrow suppression, the older drugs, lots of drug interactions of induction. All right, so this one here, 51-year-old man, cystic seizure disorder, recently initiated therapy with lamotrigine. Previously, he was treated with carbamazepine. 
He also takes warfarin for atrial fibrillation. Presents today with bleeding complications because of the warfarin. His INR, which has been therapeutic for a long time, is found to be much higher than it should be. Which of the following is the cause? Drug interaction between warfarin and carbamazepine. Does everyone agree? What happened here? Right, induction by carbamazepine increased his warfarin requirements. Because, because this was happening, enzyme induction, because of carbamazepine, he needed more warfarin to get back up to a therapeutic level. And now that we've taken that away and not corrected the warfarin, brought the dose back down, the induction's gone, and his levels are super therapeutic. So it's not that we introduced lamotrigine, it's that we took away carbamazepines. The thing that we don't see that's causing the interaction. And this probably happens here in the hospital once or twice a year where an interaction like this occurs. It's not the drug that was started that causes it, it's the one that was taken away that's the source of the issue. Good, have we done that before? Because that was pretty quick, like you did that one really well. <laughs> Maybe because it just relied on concept and not so much drug name recognition, at least not as much of it. All right, so running tally of inducers. These are a list of drugs that are, or substances that are known to be strong inducers, drugs that will produce this effect. Induction, enhanced clearance of other drugs. Three anticonvulsants, rifampin, and St. John's wort. What is St. John's wort? It's available without a prescription. It's considered a dietary supplement. People will self-medicate with it for what purposes most often? For depression. It also is an ingredient thrown in for good measure in many of the mega vitamin supplements that are out there. So many people are taking it and don't even realize it. It's not because they're seeking it out. It just happens to be wrapped up in the proprietary blend for whatever reason. 46-year-old woman undergoing elective surgical procedure accidentally too much benzodiazepine. Which of the following is an effective reversal agent? Without the choices you were able to tell me an hour or two ago, Fomazinol is your reversal agent. Now what do all of these have in common? They're all antidotes of some sort. Yeah. And acetylcysteine for what? Acetaminophen overdose. Deferoxamine. Door. <laughs> iron overdose. Yeah, it's an iron chelating agent. Naloxone, you should know. If you don't, it's too late. <laughs> and then phytonodione. Vitamin K for too much warfarin. Alright, I skipped over one. Indexinet. Any takers? It's a reversal agent for too much factor 10A inhibition. What's a factor 10A inhibitor? Edoxaban is one more commonly. Xarelto, which is rivaroxaban. Remember these drugs? This was the material that Justin taught a long, long time ago. And Eliquis which is a pixaban. These oral direct 10 inhibitors that are alternatives to what? 
Warfarin. Warfarin. Right, alternatives, oral anticoagulant alternatives to warfarin. One of their drawbacks is there has been no reversal agent until a few weeks ago. Indexinate was just approved. So we have a reversal agent now. It's interesting, they, they, this reversal agent has yet to be shown to reverse bleeding, but we know it reduces activity of the drugs in healthy people. So hopefully that carries over into reducing bleeding risk. But it's the best of what's available. All right, the receptor here, the way that flumazenil works is by competitively binds to the receptor and displaces benzodiazepine from binding them. Competitive inhibition. It does not do that for phenobarbital or other barbiturates. And by the way, also at the break someone um, reminded me, even though I keep saying phenobarbital is an old drug we don't use anymore, there are uses of that drug clinically. And one you will see, especially if you rotate through our hospital, is it increasingly being used for alcohol withdrawal. It's, we, in fact, Kevin helped develop the protocols for its use as part of this project last year. And so phenobarbital has been resurrected for alcohol withdrawal because it seems to be a little bit more effective for that purpose than using benzodiazepines. Um, said that for benzos, the overdose on them alone like, wasn't that common. Um, so when we're using this, is it to reverse the effects of like the therapeutic effects or to reverse an overdose with other substances? Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you brought this up. So um, when, if you recall, when we talked about benzodiazepines, it's not that overdoses aren't common, it's that overdoses are unlikely to produce life-threatening side effects if it's the benzo all by itself. So when would you use a reversal agent? If someone is in trouble and you want to acutely reverse the effects, or for some reason you just want them to become conscious for a reason, like you have to ask them something, or there's just something practical that you need to get them reversed. But that said, we don't use it all that often, because you usually don't need to, and we want to be careful about inducing withdrawal from the benzodiazepine, given that it's not going to be dangerous otherwise. If it's a mixed overdose, you could argue that it might even be more dangerous to reverse the effect. Let's just say someone has a mixed overdose of a tricyclic antidepressant and a benzodiazepine, which is a very likely combination for a drug overdose. What happens if you reverse the effect of the benzodiazepine? Increase the risk for neurotoxicity from the tricyclic. What's keeping that person from seizing is the fact that they've also overdosed on the benzodiazepine. And if you reverse that, you now bring out the seizure. So in the mixed overdoses, we actually like to avoid it if we can. Good? Alright. 64-year-old man, Parkinson's disease, started on a drug to treat this. His wife calls, concerned. Her husband seems to be more forgetful since starting the drug. More difficult to bowel movements. Which of the following was this patient started on? Yeah, thanks for taking a stab at that. So trihexyphenidyl, what we're looking for is a drug with anti-muscarinic properties. And that's the only one up here that fits the bill. What you're more likely to see on the exam is a drug with which of the following mechanisms as opposed to drug names. I don't want to dive too much into these specific names, trihexyphenidyl or benzotine. I don't remember exactly if they show up, but I tried not to make them the right answer. But there could be questions that test 
anti-muscarinic therapy and sort of the side effects you might expect. And so these agents here that we just, we just finished covering. And the balance between too much dopamine in the substantia nigra carrying over into the prefrontal cortex and causing side effects that might mimic what psychosis looks like. And then mechanistically, what we're trying to do. Levodopa plus carbidopa, and as disease advances, we might add which of those two? Intacapone or tolcapone? Intacapone because less, less side effects, in particular, which one? Liver toxicity. Liver toxicity could still occur, but not quite as common. This person, Parkinson's disease, follow up with this neurologist. This is what we already know. Okay. Complains that her husband seems to have developed an addiction to purchasing lottery tickets. Which drug is this? What type of drug are you looking for? A drug that does what? Dopamine receptor agonist. And so now it's which of these drugs is that? It's C, Premipexil. Yeah. So amantadine is the antiviral drug that seems to have benefit for the dyskinesias that we see with levodopa toxicity. Levodopa, we know. Recognizing carbidopa and levodopa and how each of those work, important. Selegiline, what is that? MEO type B inhibitor. And trihexyphenidyl is the anti-muscarinic agent. So prampexol is the dopamine agonist. All right, this is the last question. So um, the question's on the next page. But 67-year-old man, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, Parkinson's, arthritis, COPD. Let's just wrap up everything together. <laughs> Admitted from management of a hip fracture sustained after a recent fall. These are the laboratory values, at least some of them. So sodium, potassium, mucin, and creatinine. White count with a differential, at least part of it. Hemoglobin, hematocrit, and platelet count. Any of these appear, I'm not going to give you the normals. You tell me. Do any of these appear abnormal? <laughs> Clearly, the white blood cell count is higher than usual, right? What about the neutrophils? <laughs> the, what about the bands? What are those new ones? <laughs> right, neutrophils. When they reported, the, the total neutrophils, 60%, which is not outrageous, are made up of the segmented neutrophils, which are the mature ones, and the bands, which are the immature ones. And what about that number, 2%? It, between 0 and 3%, not that unusual. Once you get up around 5, 6, 8%, that's, that's unusual. That's a high amount of... A band. So that, that piece of it is not unusual, but the white count itself is high. Alright, this is a list of some of the medications that this patient's taking. Albuterol, levodopa therapy, gabapentin, metformin, prednisone. Which of them is most likely responsible for what we just saw? Prednisone. Prednisone, clearly. It's an elevation of white count without what? Infection. Without a left shift. Right? So why is this happening? Demargination. Demargination. Yeah. And when in, when in doubt, if it's a drug side effect and you have a steroid as an option, might as well take the steroid because that's causing the side effects. 
All right, we will um, stop there. Good luck. I'll be here that day, so if you have questions that day, I guess we'll be at that time.